Now hear God's holy word from Genesis chapter 4. Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from Yahweh. Then she bore again, this time, his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to Yahweh. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And Yahweh respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So Yahweh said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we praise you and we do give you thanks for your word this day. We pray that you would give us ears to hear it, that you would make me a capable messenger of it. Give me the ability to articulate your truth in such a way that we can embrace it and, and, and allow it to grow in us, uh, help it to take root and to bear fruit. So, Father, today I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. Amen. Dr. Abdul Rahman Al-Sumait by all accounts, was an incredibly gifted and compassionate man. He was born in Kuwait in 1947. He became one of Kuwait's most respected and skilled physicians. And at the age of 35, he left all that behind to move to the continent of Africa. He moved there to serve and work until his death, until uh, in his death in 2013, he moved to Africa at the age of 35 because he was saddened by the poverty, the hunger, the disease. And he sacrificed his life and he sacrificed his very lucrative uh, practice to move to Africa and, and sacrifice his, his own comfort to dedicate himself fully to making life better for others. Throughout his life and time in Africa, he contracted malaria. He was built, bitten by cobras, not once, but multiple times. He was imprisoned by local governments. He suffered through heart disease and diabetes, but he was determined to accomplish his goal of starting charities, orphanages, schools, and at the end of his life and through his efforts, it is estimated that he supported 9,500 orphans. He educated 95,000 students, built 850 schools, built four universities, and through his work, dug over 9,500 wells. It's also estimated that through his work, 7 million people were converted to Islam, including Christian priests and bishops. For he also built, alongside the wells and the colleges and the orphanages, he built 5,700 mosques and 102 Islamic centers. Dr. Abdul Rahman al-Sumat was a devout Muslim, you see, and he dedicated all of the things he did throughout his life to the cause and the glory and the growth of Islam. Do we have a category for somebody like that? How do we, how do we reckon with them? 
Let me give you another one. Another man, Narayan Krishnan, was a famous chef in one of the most luxurious hotels in India. He was quite sought after as, as a chef, and he made a quite, uh, uh, quite a nice living at doing what he loved. But he quit his job a few years ago to focus his time on addressing the hunger and the poverty in India. So he started a charitable organization that provides three meals a day to India's homeless. He personally visits the people his organization serves. He personally bathes them, shaves them, cuts their hair. He gently loves and serves people who are sick, people who are afflicted with deformities and mental illness. He, he, he reaches out to these people living in unimaginable conditions, and he cheerfully, joyfully serves these people who may have never in their entire lives been touched lovingly and gently the way he touches them when he serves them. Every day, Narayan Krishnan goes into some of the most hellish places on the face of the earth, going beaming with joy, loving the unlovable. And at the end of the day, at night in his home, he prays to his Hindu gods. Now, you and I, as people who believe that Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life, how do we process stories like that? Especially when we read things that make us feel guilty and put our service and work maybe to shame in some respects. How do we categorize these men when they've done some incredible work that many Christians have never done? Surely there's no hell or judgment for people like this, right? What about the agnostic doctor who, who does research that helps paralyzed people walk again? What about the atheist composer whose music stirs your heart and is the sweetest you've ever heard? What do we say to these? Do we, do we really believe that there's nothing but judgment waiting for them apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ? Are you willing to say that unless they put their faith and trust in the living son of God, cry out to him to save them from their sins, Are you willing to say that outside of that, apart from that, all of their works are nothing? Are you really prepared to say that? Well, to to let you off the hook, I am. (laughs) I am willing to say that. I also recognize this, that God has impressed upon every man and woman his image. That every man and woman is made in the image of God. And because of this, every man and woman has an amazing capacity to do and create incredible, wonderful, beautiful, lovely things. They are capable of compassion and love and can really uh, and truly alleviate the suffering and deprivation of other people. I also recognize that we can appreciate their works. You and I can give thanks to God for their works and we can learn from them because in many uh, cases, it seems like uh, those in in the pagan world, the unbelieving world are more advanced in areas than we are. And they can do much more lovely, amazing things than we in many cases. And at the same time, as we recognize and acknowledge that at the same time, we can still maintain that apart from Jesus Christ, there is no hope of eternal life. Not for Dr. Al-Sumat, not for Narayan Krishnan, not for me, not for you, not for anybody. There is no hope apart from Jesus Christ. 
But, but what is the difference then? If we were to just, if we were somehow able to assign a value to the work of the compassionate pagan or the compassionate idolater, if we were able to understand uh, tr- truly the shape of their work and line it up against our work, assuming we can do that, what is the difference? The difference between the two is something like the difference between Abel's worship and Cain's worship. It's the difference between working with gratitude and thanksgiving and obedience to the creator and working in the world in such a way that you ignore God and end up giving thanks to an idol or to yourself or to chance or to natural selection. You see, the effort may be similar, but in whose name is the work being done? To whom is the worship and thanksgiving directed? You know, because God is our creator, he gets to say how he is approached. Because he is our creator, he gets to say how he wants us to worship him and obey him. And tragically, as heartbreaking as it is, these men who do all of this amazing work and then give thanks to an idol, they direct all of their life's work to something that is powerless and something that is false. Yes, in the process, can we give thanks that people are bathed and fed and relieved of their suffering momentarily in life? Absolutely, we can give thanks for that. But the one serving and the one being served are not one bit closer to eternal life. They have no answer for death. They have no solution to the grave, no ability to overcome it. And that includes us as well, unless we are united to Jesus, the only one who has conquered death. So what this little exercise does, and, and, and I, I, we're often challenged by these very questions, but what it does, I think, underscores the critical role of gratitude properly expressed, gratitude properly exercised in the life of every single human being under the sun. Gratitude to the God of creation is the hinge on which that difficult question turns. For all that men might do and accomplish, who ultimately is being thanked and honored by their work? I've been meditating a lot on the role and function of thanksgiving in the life of the Christian, in the life of the church, in the life of the world. How, how gratitude and thanksgiving, and I'm going to use those word, words interchangeably. There may be some nuance between thanksgiving and gratitude. I'm just going to blur that, and I'm going to use them interchangeably uh, to say that, uh, that, that gratitude is the starting point for all right worship and right living and love of God and love of neighbor in the world. What is the importance of gratitude? Well, first, the exercise of thanksgiving and gratitude directs us outside of ourselves to recognize that we're not the solitary point of origin for anything good that we have. All blessing and all salvation and light and life comes from outside of us. In fact, I would go so far to say that everything good that I benefit from comes from outside of me. I don't find the answers to life, the universe, and everything inside of myself, inside my head, inside my heart, or my emotions. Every good thing that I have has been given me from the outside. Even my body, brain, emotions, spirit, life, 
all those things have been given to me. I did not start myself. I did not create myself. Even, even this uh, has been given to me as a gift. And so gratitude recognizes that, that all blessing has come to us and all of these things have come to us from the outside. We are the receiver. We are the recipient of all good things. And so Thanksgiving puts us in a position of humility as we receive things that we need that we cannot create for ourselves. It admits, Thanksgiving admits that we're not self-sufficient as much as I would like to have been when the tree fell in my yard, as I said this morning, as much as I would like to say, oh, we're gonna roll up my sleeves and take care of this myself. It's ridiculous. We can't do things like that on our own. We are not self-sufficient. We are completely contingent upon God's blessing. Moses warned Israel about this in Deuteronomy. He said, you're gonna be tempted to say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. So not only are you not the origin, the point of origin for all good things, but you have been given these good things by God so that his name is glorified and his covenant is secured upon you. So gratitude directs us to acknowledge that all life comes from outside of ourselves. And so it follows that two, true gratitude then is directed to the proper source, the source of life and blessing. If you go out of your way to do something really incredibly nice for me and, and I ignore uh, you and don't give you thanks for that, but then I happen to go to Harris Teeter the next day and I just start thanking everybody up and down the aisle for that nice casserole that I received yesterday. You, you went out of your way and you fixed me a supper and, and I don't thank you, but I thank everybody else in the, in the grocery store. Well, I might be giving thanks, but I'm not directing that gratitude toward the proper recipient of that, those things. In fact, that is, not, that is not gratitude at all. I haven't directed thanks to the source of blessing. Misplaced gratitude, misdirected gratitude is idolatry. Recall how Aaron tempted Israel to make a golden calf. Do you remember that? And then he led them to praise that golden calf saying, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. I mean, just for a moment, Live in that scene. You've read it so many times throughout your life. Live in that scene and think about how ridiculous that is. They take off their golden bracelets and necklaces and earrings and nose rings and they throw them into the fire and they make this molten uh, uh, image, this molten calf, this, this bronze calf, and it comes out and, and, they, and Aaron says, look, here's your God that brought you out of, out of Egypt. How, how utterly ridiculous and beyond belief it, it is to thank that for the great deliverance that they have been given. But you see, that is, that is the heart of idolatry. Ingratitude um, uh, is misplaced uh, worship. That It puts our, uh, our thanks on the wrong uh, source of blessing. Paul talks about this in Romans 1. He says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, 
but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image. So you see, suppress the truth and the revelation of God and you become unthankful for his goodness. And because you're created for worship, you will inevitably worship something else. Thus, ingratitude is idolatry. If God has blessed me, and I thank myself, or I thank my government, or I thank the universe, or I thank Zeus, or I thank voodoo man, you know, whatever else. If I thank anything other than God, that is idolatry. Now, now certainly, God uses men's and means to bless me so that if somebody does something kind to me, I can certainly thank them. But in thanking them, I'm recognizing that, that ultimately God is the source of of my blessing. And just as also, if somebody thanks you for something, we, we have this kind of game we play in false humility. Say, oh, don't thank me. Thank the Lord. Well, I know, I know what you're saying. I know that you do want to give praise and glory to God, but you really did work hard and you really do deserve my thanks. So say, uh, you're welcome. And then say, you know, I'm, I'm just thankful to God that I was able to, to help you. So certainly I'm, I'm not discounting the fact that he uses men and means and and, and God uses people to love us and to, to bless us. But, but here's the point. If I pretend to live in a universe without a loving Heavenly Father and direct my worship and thanks for all good things to something other than Him, I am an idolater. And so it follows from there, thirdly, that ingratitude is the root of all sin. The failure of man to be thankful to his creator, the failure to give thanks to our creator is the fountain from, all, uh, from, from out of which all rebellion and all disorder flows. When God gave his 10 law words, his 10 commandments to Israel, each commandment is built upon gratitude. We went through this back last year when we went through the 10 commandments. I pointed out every step of the way how, how violation of each commandment was at root ingratitude to, to God. Uh, before the first commandment, he says, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So, so the implication there is, if you have the least bit of thanksgiving in your heart for the gift of your freedom, you will obey my voice. And out of that thanksgiving, he says, here's what I want you to do. You shall have no other gods before me. Be thankful that I am your God and not the gods of the pagans. Don't make carved images to bow down to them and serve them. I am the living God. I'm not some deaf and dumb idol. Be thankful for me. He says, you shall not carry the name of Yahweh your God in vain. Value my name. Appreciate my name because hallowing my name is hallowing me. Give thanks for the glory of my name. Remember the Sabbath, he says. Stop and rest from your own works so that you can be thankful in and for my works and acknowledge my provision and care over you. Well, you could go through the rest of the commandments. Honor your father and mother. Be thankful for the authorities I've placed over you. You shall not be murder. In other words, be thankful for the gift of life. You shall not commit adultery. Be thankful for your husband. Be thankful for your wife. Be thankful for the gift of marriage. You shall not steal. Be thankful for what God has given you and don't take what belongs to someone else. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Be thankful for your neighbor by loving him and protecting his reputation and protecting him with the truth. You shall not covet. Be thankful for what you have. Do not snub what God has given you and crave what belongs to your neighbor. You see, the, the entire Decalogue, the entire, uh, the, the law is based upon, it's grounded upon thanksgiving and gratitude. 
A spirit of gratitude lies at the center of our obedience to God. It forces us to look outside of ourselves and to the creator, directing our thanks to him. Ingratitude is self-centered, self-absorbed. Ingratitude perpetuates the self-deceptive myth that I am self-sustaining. I don't need anyone. I don't need anything else. Ingratitude is idolatry. Ingratitude is the starting point for all rebellion. So seeing then how critical the practice of gratitude is, I want to spend these next few Lord's Days between now and Advent meditating upon the necessity of thanksgiving and the great danger of ingratitude. We're blessed to live in a time and place where every November our our society still stops and recognizes the need for Thanksgiving. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that we have a day called Thanksgiving. We have a whole day set aside for it. But it's necessary that in the midst of this, we stop and ask the question, Thanksgiving for what? Thanksgiving to whom? To whom is this Thanksgiving directed? We can't simply say, oh, I give thanks. Well, okay, to whom? Or to say, well, I'm, I'm just so thankful I, oh, I am too. Who are you thankful to? For what are you thankful? Thanks are directed to a giver. Who is the giver? That's the question. So if you and I are to lead our families and lead, our, uh, lead the world the right way in answering these questions, we must cultivate thanksgiving in our lives in our homes, and in the church. And so the first area that I'd like to pick up on briefly is the need to be thankful for our brothers and sisters, to be thankful for our spouses, to be thankful for our families, our friends, our neighbors, and coworkers, to demonstrate gratitude for people, to give thanks for the people that God has, has sovereignly put in our lives. I began by reading that tragic account of Cain and Abel. The actions of Cain who so clearly was ungrateful for the blessing of his brother and Cain's ingratitude led to murder. The the story of these two men who present offerings to God, they both do good works, but, but one is offered rightly with faith. One is offered spitefully with ingratitude. And it's only the sacrifice presented in faith that is acceptable before God. But the story of Cain and Abel actually begin back with Adam and Eve in the garden after Adam and Eve were found out for their rebellion against God. God clothed Adam and Eve in robes or or tunics of skin. And in providing these tunics, God had to kill an animal or two to clothe them. They were clothed in the skins of an animal. Adam and Eve, remember, had listened to a beast, they had submitted to a beast, they had followed a beast rather than God, so that beastly idol needed to be killed symbolically. Also, they learned that when I sin, something has to die. Sin inevitably leads to a consequence of death. Death is the result of sin. And so while I deserve to die right now because I sinned, God has accepted a substitute. For now that substitute is an animal, eventually God is going to send his own son as that perfect and final substitute. But from here on, every time an animal is sacrificed, God's people remember these two things. Put away your idols and sin leads to death. 
I need to be forgiven and I need to go through this process. So the animal goes through the sacrifice as our representative. And we see, I need to put to death my own sin. So Cain and Abel, born to Adam and Eve, listen and watch as they grow up. When fellowship is broken, they see the need to set things right. There has to be a sacrifice. There has to be a substitutionary offering. Now, Cain is given a privilege of taking on his father's business as a gardener. Adam was a gardener. His firstborn son, Cain, is a gardener. And he works the land and he grows the vegetables. Abel's job is to work with animals. And we read that in the process of time, Cain and Abel bring their offerings to God. And that little phrase, in the process of time, may indicate some kind of marker of Sabbath or some special time to stop and worship God and renew covenant with him. And so you know the story. Abel picked up on God's principles and example. It has to be an animal. Abel makes it a firstborn. His best, his offering comes off the top. He offers the fat of the animal, the best, because Abel says, I know I deserve to die, but God graciously accepts this substitute in my place. And I worship him and I thank him with all my being for all that I have through this animal sacrifice. Cain, though, remember, doesn't follow the Lord's example. Cain brings vegetables to God. And if many years have gone by, we can assume that at one point Cain has worshipped the right way. We can assume that Cain has been part of his family's worship and has seen animal sacrifices and has participated in them. But now he's decided, he's taken it upon himself to detour and go a different way, to do things his own way. So the right thing for him to do would be to have traded some, some vegetables to his brother for an animal that he could sacrifice or somehow enter into the worship of his brother and share that sacrifice with him. But he doesn't. In fact, he arrogantly offers a bloodless sacrifice. And then on top of that becomes pridefully jealous when the Lord accepts his brother's sacrifice and not his own. Now, now God is patient, right? He doesn't immediately dismiss Cain. He speaks to him as a father God encourages him to do right. He sees the path that he's headed down in his anger. And God warns him against going any farther. He says, sin is like a beast crouching at your door. But you have to kill it, Cain. And just as I killed the beast to clothe your mother and father, just as Abel killed the beast that he offered, just as I am going to kill the serpent, just as I'm going to offer my own son as a sacrifice, Cain, you have to humble yourself, bring the right kind of sacrifice, kill the sin that lies at your door, and I will be pleased, and your countenance will be lifted up. Well, the conversation that God has with Cain there is the kind of conversation that most people don't want to have, especially when someone older says to someone younger, you know, I can see where you're going. I see where this all is headed. I've seen this movie before, and I know in five or 10 years what your life is going to look like if you stay on the path that you're going. I I don't see any fire yet, but I can sure smell the smoke. I I can see where this is headed. And then invariably, you know, you've had this experience. The younger person says, I haven't done anything wrong. I'm okay. I can hold up. I've got it under control. I won't be like everybody else. Well, okay. But, but this is the kind of conversation God has with Cain. And the kind of dismissive response that Cain apparently gives God is the same. I'm okay. I don't, I don't, I don't need this. So Cain goes to Abel angry. Angry that his brother made him look bad by doing the right thing. 
Abel's crime against Cain was doing what God told him to do. That, that, that That was his offense. Cain's lack of thanksgiving toward God sprouted ingratitude for the life and work of his brother. And his jealousy and strife toward his brother fed his ingratitude toward God. You see, strife between brothers is born out of a lack of thanksgiving and worship of God. Later, Jesus is going to say this on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Jesus says, but I say to you, whoever, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. So Jesus categorizes anger as a form of breaking the sixth commandment. Anger is a violation of the sixth commandment, unchecked, unholy anger. In 1 John 3, John says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that murderer murderer has no eternal life abiding in him. So, So not only is hatred a species of the sin of murder, but unchecked apart from repentance, hatred leads to murder. There are all these incremental murders, right? I can kill my brother's name. I can kill his reputation. I can kill his relationships. I can kill or cut off his productivity in the world. I can, I can seek to do him harm in all kinds of ways that, that, are, that are just short of taking his life. But all of these are violations of the commandment not to, not to kill, Jesus said. Jesus groups all of these together under this sin of murder. And eventually it does end in murder. That's the path you're set, set out, uh, setting out on when you, when you stoke hatred in your heart. Well, anyway, we can only imagine what happened when Cain confronted Abel. We know that Jesus listed Abel among the prophets, right? Jesus says to Israel, you've killed all the prophets I sent you from Abel to Zechariah. Now you never thought, well, is Abel a prophet? Well, how is Abel a prophet? Well, it's safe to assume that Abel, as a prophet, exhorted his brother to do the right thing. Cain, brother, all you've got to do is obey the Lord God, do the right thing. And the response from Cain to his brother for that exhortation is to kill his brother. That's what happens to prophets, it turns out. You can imagine Cain was thinking, you know what, if God wants a blood sacrifice, I'm going to give him a blood sacrifice. I'm going to give him the sacrifice of my brother. And that's where we stopped reading. So let me just read a few more verses. Verse 9, Yahweh said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. Cain said to Yahweh, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And Yahweh said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And Yahweh set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. When any blood is spilled, it gets God's attention, especially if it's the blood of the innocent. Abel's blood cries out from the ground for vengeance. But once again, God is merciful to Cain. He doesn't destroy him. He does put a mark on him. And Cain wears that mark forever. And the brothers and nephews that he's going to run into later are going to know to leave him alone. So so pulling this all together, you see between Cain and Abel that there are two ways of approaching God. One in faith and thanksgiving, seeking to please God and do what he says and not follow your own understanding. And then there's the way of self 
service, ingratitude, bitterness, jealousy, and anger that leads to death. Both approach God and you could say, well, Cain tried, right? He, he didn't stay at home on his couch. He got up and he went to church, right? I mean, he, he, he did something. Yeah, you're right. Cain tried and he failed. And when he was corrected, he ignored the correction. And even though the Lord was patient with him, Cain's life and worship were not pleasing to God. God is not happy with Cain's worship and he doesn't accept it. And that's God's prerogative because he's creator. Cain's brother hatred continues, working itself out in the generations of his own family. Cain later has a descendant, Lamech, who is a murderer. So Cain sets the pace for his family and his rebellion multiplies throughout the generations until it ultimately plunges the world into chaos and judgment before the flood. Cain's profession of faith, his entire outlook is summed up in that one little response to God, that little snarky question, am I my brother's keeper? What is he asking there when he says that? Am I my brother's keeper? Remember, Adam was called by God to dress and what? The garden? Keep the garden. What does that mean? The word keep means defend. It means watch over. It means protect. Adam was to preserve the garden and the life in it. Principally, protect the bride in the garden. That's what it meant to keep the garden. Protect the garden. Protect the garden from whom? What threat was there to the garden? The serpent. And he failed to do that. Obviously, Adam failed to keep the garden. And then his son Cain denies that he has a duty to keep, defend, watch over, protect his brother. Denying that it was his job in any sense of the word to show thankfulness for his brother by protecting and preserving his brother. So he does the opposite, which is to imitate the serpent to enter into the serpent's role, Cain destroyed his brother. So these two paths are pretty clear. We are either our brother's keeper or we are our brother's destroyer. We're either our brother's keeper, defender, protector, or we enter into the role of the serpent. And what is the role of the serpent? What does he do? He's a destroyer. How does he destroy? What is his chief tactic? The name Satan is a title. It means accuser. Revelation, the book of Revelation calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. We see him in that role in the book of Job, right? As an accuser coming into God's law court, bringing up accusations against Job. Satan attacks through accusation. Are you really faithful? Are you really forgiven? Were you really sincere when you did this or that, when you served in this way? Or did you do it for yourself? Or did you do it for some kind of uh, glory? Are you, are, you, are you really forgiven for that thing? Oh, what about that other thing? Are you forgiven for this thing? Satan's role as accuser is to, is to dig up your dirty laundry and to rub it in your face. He has so much contempt and hatred. Satan cannot stand for you to be happy and to be thankful for God's good gifts. So he undermines that happiness by sowing seeds of doubt and fear and turmoil and chaos. Satan destabilizes through accusation. 
Now, a few weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 107, which was a man's plea to God to deal with false accusers who had set themselves up as miniature Satans to bring grief and torment against him. So accusation, the churning of complaints and the flurry of criticism, the stoking of fires of conflict, the needling and the griping and the nagging, that's Satan's work. Accusation unfounded, unnecessary, unbridled, uncharitable accusation is satanic. That's his work. He is the chief accuser of the brethren and he loves it when you participate in his occupation. When you help him out, he adores you for it. When you help him in his role of accusation. So for us, the two options are pretty clear. We're either our brother's keeper or we are our brother's accuser. And by brother, you know what I mean, right? My son is my brother. My wife is my sister. My daughter is my sister uh, in the faith, right? You are my brothers and my sisters. My mother and father are my brother and sister. Am I my brother's keeper? And by brother, I'm talking about all of those people that God has populated my life with out of his love, out of his, out of his graciousness toward me, out of his desire to see me sanctified. He has given me this, this multitude of people. And I'm, am I their keeper? Is that the role God has given me? Or has God given me the role of accuser? Am I my son's accuser? Am I my daughter's accuser? Am I my spouse's? Am I I my wife's accuser? Am I this congregation's accuser? Is that my job? Is that my role? Or am I keeper? We, We need to clearly define what our role is there right? Because so often I'm afraid that if we, if we kind of run the tape back and look over the past week, we think, oh yeah, accuser, 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 accuser. Yeah. Oh, maybe keeper. Oh boy. I think, I think I did one there. Accuser, accuser. Either we express gratitude for the gift that God has given us of putting people in our lives. The, the, we express gratitude for the fact that God has not left us lonely. God has given us the benefit of the gifts of others. And we express gratitude for that by keeping, protecting our brother's name, his reputation, his livelihood. We keep and protect his family, his property. Or we, like Cain, we are our brother's destroyer. We take up the work of Satan to undermine, undercut, disrupt, accuse, to be the universal critic, to sit in the seat of judgment. We do it and it comes so easily, doesn't it? It comes so freely. (laughs) Accusation rolls uh, right off of our tongues. Not in the form of, you know, I'm not talking about gentle corrective correction, uh, constructive correction rather, but I'm talking about mean-spirited, heartless, spiteful, nasty words of anger and frustration. Mostly when they aren't around too, right? We, we have this inflated sense of our worth and of our own opinion and our own importance. And we think we have it right. And if, you know, we, we've got this thing we can hold over someone else. Put that away. Cut it out. Stop it. Repudiate it. Abhor it. Cease the works of the devil. Stop being accusers of the brethren and be keepers of your brother. Give thanks for the brethren and in giving thanks for them, give thanks for all of the challenges and all of the awkwardness and all of the difficulty that they bring with them. 
along with their gifts and their callings and all the ways that they help you and all the ways that they're good for you, they're good for you in ways that you don't even know about. They sustain you and sanctify you in ways that get you really aggravated. And that's their blessing to you as well. We all have these relationships that are more difficult than others, but that's no excuse. Be your brother's keeper. Dedicate yourself to being the anti-Cain who, instead of killing your brother, die for your brother. Who's the ultimate anti-Cain? Well, it's certainly the Lord Jesus. Run a self-diagnostic on your hypercritical spirit. Ask God to help you properly worship him in the right spirit by giving thanks for the brethren. Ingratitude is the mother of all sin. If there's someone God has given you who you are not thankful for, you're out of order. Your ingratitude will lead to destruction. Give thanks, show appreciation, demonstrate your love and your gratitude. And I'll finish with 1 Timothy 2, where Paul says to Timothy, therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. What Paul says there, let me, let me, let me break it down. I exhort you to give thanks for all men so that you may lead a quiet and peaceable life in godliness and reverence. That's the exhortation from God's word. Let's take it to heart. Let's pray. Father, we we praise you and we do give you thanks for our brothers and sisters, our family members, the people that you have populated our lives with. And we ask you to help us, teach us to be truly thankful indeed. Uh, Grow us up in the grace of thanksgiving. Grow us up in gratitude. And may we never cease to proclaim it, to express it. And, uh, and, And help us to understand this further and further as we study this over the next couple of weeks. We humbly ask Uh, for your Holy Spirit to revive us in in these areas. Uh, And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.